Welcome to Know My Faith. My guest is uh, Philip Hill. Philip, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me, Rob. It's an honor to be with you. Yeah, it's good to be with you too. You are very much involved in uh, evangelism, but uh, what we are interested in at the moment in this podcast is uh, Jewish evangelism, uh, particularly for our our people who host Israeli travelers as they come through different countries. Uh, and I know that you've been involved in teaching people how to witness to Jews. Yes, uh, this has actually been a passion of my heart now for several years. And uh, I actually had the opportunity to participate with the family hosting uh, Jewish tourists in New Zealand. So I've seen firsthand how it works. And um, I think it's a tremendous model, an amazing opportunity, um, because it's always uh, um, a very attractive when you're offering free hospitality. Yeah. And um, to have someone in your home and someone experiencing hospitality from you is just uh, in itself a very welcoming gesture. And it just provides a tremendous opportunity to, to share the most important thing you can share with them, and that's the gospel. So I'm very uh, uh, grateful to see this model yeah. uh, really happening in various places. So there's a there's a right way and there's a wrong way of doing it, um, and uh, and I know just from talking with you and we were talking with a couple of others that uh, that you have some keys that can help us from not help us to, to not do it the wrong way. Right. Yeah. Um, I would probably say it's there's a wise and an unwise way to do it just simply because uh God in his graciousness he he can he can overcome our shortcomings at times yeah. to yet still reach someone um but you're exactly right there is a way I think that's very effective um and when I say effective it doesn't necessarily mean uh they walk on water and you win them in every case but you do what I like to call putting stones in the shoes and really, really giving them something that's going to stick with them, that's going to prod their conscience yeah, uh, and really challenge them to think about the truth of the gospel and by the grace of God, hopefully respond. And when we are sharing with Jews, it's very important that we first of all, discern which type of Jewish person we're dealing with. And by that, I don't mean an Ashkenazi or a Mizrahim yeah. or a Sephardic Jew. Uh, I mean, specifically, how do they understand their Jewish identity? And that will probably be indicative of whether or not they are a, a Jew who's actually theistic or not. Yeah. And so whether or not they believe in God, how they understand Jewish identity, how they embrace it, these are important things you want to discern because uh, your presentation of the gospel to them will need to be tailored accordingly um, to that uh, yeah. understanding of their Jewish identity. Because not all Jews trace their lineage back to Abraham. There's, there's the the very secular side, isn't it, that, that says, well, Abraham was a, was just a myth, but we come from this and that. Absolutely, yeah. I, I actually remember sharing with the guy once, and 
this is exactly what he said. You know, every culture or ethnicity he said needs a sort of historical myth to base their sense of identity upon. And so in his understanding, uh, all of the Torah history about the beginnings of Jewish identity were just simply myth. But yet still, he passionately embraces that identity. Yeah. So, yeah, absolutely. Because, I mean, Jewishness is very, very different. There are, uh, there are those who are, uh, if I can say the word simply, descended from Jewish people. There are still proselytes who become Jewish. It's not yes. a it's not a national identity uh, uh, because you can be a uh, you can be a French Jew or you can be an Israeli Jew or a New Zealand Jew, uh, and you mm-hmm. can either be religious or, as we've just said, you know, completely atheist and not believe in any god at all. Um, and and for those that are because most of our travellers are coming straight out of the IDF, they're young people. They've done their term with the IDF. They they want to hit the world. They come around and they can be every stream of Judaism. Right. You know, I, I, I think there are three major categories uh, or the three general categories, I should say, uh, of how the identity is perceived. And that would be a nationalistic identity, a religious identity, and uh, ethnical cultural mm-hmm. uh, identity. And you, they tend to embrace one of them for some, in some cases, for example, uh, your religious, uh, um, uh, let's say Sephardic Jews or your religious, uh, um, Jews in Jerusalem, for them, it will be all three. Yes. So religious is a national and it's a cultural identity. But if you ask, uh, uh, a Jew in Tel Aviv, for example, you know, it just may simply be something nationalistic. Uh, uh, I, I say sometimes if you, if you uh, considering just how, for example, the religious, some religious Jews won't even recognize uh, many Jews in Israel solely because they don't have a, a maternal uh, 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 Jewish parent. Yeah. And um, in that case, they're not perceived as Jewish unless they go through a, a conversion process. And many Jews in Israel fall, and not just in Israel, around the world, they fall into that category. So um, even within Israel, there is this, this sense of, uh, well, you may be more or less Jewish, depending on whether or not you have maternal Jewishness yeah. in, in, in your blood. Yeah. So if you take a Jew from Jerusalem, a religious Jew from Jerusalem, and a, uh, let's say a secular Jew from Tel Aviv, and you put them in a room and asked, uh, put up the question, uh, who is a real Jew? You might not have two Jews in the room. Yeah. Uh, it reminds me a little bit of a, um, uh, a gentleman I met here. I actually met him off a, uh, an American warship. We used to host some of the sailors uh, to parties years and years ago. And he was taller than me. I'm six foot three. He was taller than me. He was a big black guy. And uh, and I said hi to him. And he goes, hi, boyo, with a Welsh accent. And I'm going, so, you know, it's, you've got African-American, but how about African-English or yeah, yeah. African-French <laughs> or, you know, so, so oh, well, which one's the real descendant from Africa? And, and the answer is all of them. Um, All of them, absolutely. And I think that's the thing with, and so what we have to get out of our out of our heads is that uh, 
whoever we're hosting, uh, whichever Israeli travel, we've got to get out of our heads that here is somebody who believes in Yahweh, whether or not they follow him, and they are in their minds and in their hearts, they are actually a spiritual Jew as well as an ethnic or, or cultural Jew. That's just not always the case. That's not always the case. And I would say, for example, if you were in Tel Aviv, probably that is not the majority. That's probably a, a, a minority. of uh, The majority in Tel Aviv probably are non-religious. Yeah, it's a know, very secular atheist, city. Agnostic, yes. And, uh, you know, I could be over, you know, it could be more or less 50-50, but... It, I think the most statistics can indicate that uh, it's, it's mostly agnostic or atheist there. And yet still, interestingly, though, something about Jewish identity, despite what stigmas may come with it in various parts of the world, they tend to embrace that identity. And I think that is something we can always leverage in our sharing the gospel to them because um even though some of them may regard the history of the identity as myth mythological, um, yet still it is a, a myth, or say it is a myth, it's the truth. Yeah, we, yeah. Know it's the truth we know but, that, yeah. Yeah, yeah it, is, uh, it is the history of that identity is a history of a man and a relation, his relationship with God. And so the identity itself traces itself to God, the creator, and a relationship, a special relationship with him. And therefore, um, that's something that is you, you, about Jewish identity that you can always leverage um, with the Jew, regardless of whether they believe or not, just simply to make the point that even if you regard it as a myth, well, you are embracing an identity that is yet still an identity that's rooted in a relationship with God. With the Creator, yeah, yeah. What are uh, what are some of the unwise things that we do when talking to uh, to Jews? Yeah, well, you've already touched on one of the unwise assumptions, and that is assuming that they just believe yeah. in God. And uh, I think. Uh, Another one would perhaps be um, rushing to uh, the New Testament. Um, the, uh, we, I sometimes like to think of the New Testament as the commentary on the Old Testament, so I'm reluctant <laughs> to say that because in, in a sense, it really is the best comment, the greatest commentary ever written. It's I've, said, I've said for years that the New Testament, I mean, the, the bulk of the New Testament, apart from the Gospels and Revelation, is Paul's writings. And, and pretty much Paul simply explains the Tanakh in the light of Yeshua being the Messiah. Absolutely, yeah. This is, uh, absolutely. So it's the greatest commentary ever yeah. written. And um, so, but what I mean is that it, we, there's a tendency, you know, just to drop in a John 3.16 yeah. uh, without giving context. You know, I often say when I'm teaching Jewish evangelism that before John 3.16, there's John 3.14 and John 3.15. And, and Jesus is really basing that truth on 
the experience in the wilderness with the bronze, the bronze serpent. Yes. So even Jesus gives us John three sixteen in light of the book of Numbers, uh, where the Lord provides salvation to his people while they were under judgment. And that model in and of itself, uh, that example in John 3 should be instructive for us that and uh, uh, how we approach sharing with the Jew because the Torah, the Old Testament, however you want to refer to it, the Tanakh, is something one they're very familiar with. Yes. And because they get they actually uh -huh. even, even if they're not religious, they actually get that taught in school. Absolutely. So there's a strong affinity to it just through their upbringing culturally. And so it's very familiar and um it also is kind of uh surprising to many of them <laughs> when they encounter a Gentile who quite uh, a non-Jewish person that knows it quite well. Yeah, yeah. So I, I think one of the unwise things we do, just to, to answer the question clearly, is that we underestimate the impact and the uh, of the Old Testament. We underestimate um how um, how important and, and how uh powerful it can be with engaging in conversation with a jewish person and letting that be our launching pad yeah. for a presentation of the gospel so uh the old testament is a gold mine i mean it, it really is where we need to where i, I think it's wisest to to start your delivery of, of a gospel presentation to a Jewish person. Well, that's where Paul started all the time, wasn't it? You know, he, he went into the synagogues to the Jews in the synagogues and reasoned with them from the scriptures, from the Old Testament, proving from the Old Testament that Jesus was the Messiah. Yeah, absolutely. If we just actually surveyed and do a New Testament survey now, we'll see it over in throughout the New Testament, Matthew 1, if you got the genealogy, you know, with all of the the, the references back to mm. the Old Testament, connecting the dots and showing that this happened and to fulfill the scripture that yeah. said, you go to Romans, Paul says in chapter one, you know, the gospel that was preached beforehand. Yes. So he's even yeah. saying that this gospel I'm presenting to you is not something that I invented. It's not something new and novel. Yeah, yeah. It's been preached beforehand. I'm clarifying it and um, uh, explaining more of how it's been fulfilled. But uh, it is uh, an old gospel yeah. that is really being fulfilled uh, at this time. And onward throughout the New Testament, you, you see the constant references of the gospel that was preached beforehand, yep. that was foreshadowed, that the apostles and Jesus are now delivering the truth yep. of his fulfillment. So um, that is really how they presented the gospel. And that's why we, like we were just saying, this is uh, the greatest commentary yep, yep. on the, uh, the, the uh, Tanakh. On, on the Jewish scriptures, which, which we need to know. Uh, my wife and I use the, um, the complete Jewish Bible. Um, for our for our devotions, and I love the fact that um, in the New Testament, in all the Old Testament quotations are in bold, 
And when you get to the book of Hebrews, I mean, Romans also, but in the book of Hebrews, the whole, almost the whole book's in bold because oh, wow. it's simply quoting from the Old Testament. And, and wouldn't we love to have been on the road to Emmaus when Jesus explained from Moses and going through all the prophets? Absolutely. I, though, you know, could you imagine? Uh, uh, that's one uh, one of my, uh, I shouldn't say disappointment, but I, I really wish we would have had that Bible study. Yeah, do, why why don't <laughs> they have a camcorder? It's interesting. I was just thinking when you were, when you were talking about John 3, we use John 4 and the woman at the well an awful lot when we talk about uh, situational and cultural evangelism. And, you know, yeah. Jesus met her where she was. But we forget, and, and you've only just brought this to mind because of what you just said. Jesus used exactly the same thing with Nicodemus in John chapter 3. It was cultural evangelism. He took Nicodemus where he was and then presented himself as the Messiah. Yes, absolutely. And he understood the, their familiarity mm. with the scriptures and particularly cases in which God accomplished salvation for a sinful people. Yep. And so Jesus latches on to that one of various examples to it to to show Nicodemus um, how it is that God accomplishes salvation. And you see that is the question that really is behind all most of the New Testament specific messages or presentations yep. of the gospel to a Jewish audience. And when I say Jewish audience, it can be an individual like Nicodemus who came by night or a crowd of Jews, as in Acts chapter uh, uh, 7 uh, with Stephen's audience or yep. Luke chapter 4, um, where, where the, in that uh, the question behind it is, uh, how is it that God is accomplished salvation? And they refer to Old Testament examples yeah. of God bringing about deliverance or forgiveness uh, in cases where the people were either in sin of their own or yeah. in bondage. Is this still and a question there that, that is in the Jewish consciousness? How can I be saved? This is uh, one of the things we have to, under, I think is important to understand in, in Jewish evangelism especially, but evangelism in general is getting people to start asking the right question. Uh, let me give uh, an example of this. In Matthew 22, um, Jesus, uh, I believe it's chapter 22 or 20, chapter 21, but Jesus raises the question, what do you think about the Christ? Now, this is just after they tried to test him. Whose son is he? And yeah. who, who, whose son is he, right? Um, and, uh, and, they say, oh, that's an easy one. <laughs> He's the son of David. Okay, yeah. right. Now, we can all agree with that. Uh, okay, then Jesus comes, follows up with another question then. So why then does David call him Lord? <laughs> yeah. If he's David's son, then why does he call him Lord? See, the, the question had never entered their mind uh, to, to, to think about this, to uh, to because we can all agree that on the one hand, the Messiah is the, the son of David. Yeah. It's clear from the Old Testament. But on the other hand, he's more than that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And these are things we, we we read them, but we don't. I mean, I, I posted a question just recently um, on multiple Facebook groups. 
And uh, I said, I said in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Why? Why, why did an all-sufficient God who was quite happy in himself, he didn't need to create anything, you know? And we can, we can read it and go, hey, in the beginning, God created the, the heavens and the earth, and we read on, but we never stop and ask the question, why? So what Jesus is doing here is he's, he's putting one of those questions in and say, actually, stop and think about what you believe. Yeah, uh, and the, the fact is, is that most people are living life asking the wrong questions. And so one of the most important things you can do for anyone is to get them to start asking the right questions. Right, yeah. You know, parents go through this all the time with, <laughs> with children. And, um, but especially in evangelism, you see this in the New Testament where they are trying to get the, their listeners to ask the right question. Uh, if, Another example of this, um, one of the most powerful passages, I think, for sharing the gospel with the Jews is uh, Daniel chapter 9, I believe, chapter 9 or chapter... With um, the the, the, coming of the prince and the destruction of the temple. Yeah, Yeah. and and, uh, one of the things about that passage is that, first of all, it's clear that there will be a destruction of the temple. It's clear that there will be... uh, um, a, a call to rebuild it, right? Yeah. And and then there will be um, the Messiah will be cut off um, before yeah. the, the destruction of that temple. And uh, so if you have the Messiah being cut off and then you have the, um, uh, bef- before the destruction of the temple, yeah, the second temple, um, <laughs> So you now have changed. If you can demonstrate this, and I remember sharing this with a, a, a Jewish guy somewhere in the world, and he said, uh, he, he said, whoa, he's a religious Jew. He said, yep. oh, this is the strongest evidence I've ever seen for Jesus as the Messiah. But basically what happens is in many of the minds of Jewish people, especially religious ones, they believe in a Messiah to come. They are technically messianic yes. in the sense that they have a hope for a Messiah to come. Um, but what you do when using a passage like Daniel chapter 9, for example, is in their mind, the question is, who is the Messiah to come? Well, Daniel 9 changes that question to who is the Messiah who came? When you show how yeah. the Messiah had to have been cut off before the destruction of the second temple. I don't know anyone that disputes that that happened in 70 AD. What and so therefore you are able to establish um, um, that the Messiah had to have already come. Yeah. So now you have a question of, okay, then, well, if the Messiah has already come, then who was he? Yeah. <laughs> and I think that with, with that, with that situation as well, you, you again, when we're talking about wisdom, you have to allow them to make discoveries for themselves. You show them the passage and say, what is the passage talking about? Well, it seems to be saying that Messiah will come, um, and after Messiah comes, the temple will be destroyed. So get them to yeah. say that. First. You don't you don't slam them with, hey, look, the temple was destroyed in 70 AD, so you know, let them. And then you go, well, when was the temple destroyed? And they go, oh, flip, now I'm in trouble. You know, because it was... Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And this goes back to, you know, the first question you raise about what are some of the unwise things we do. 
on the one hand, we assume that many Jews are spiritual, but yet on the other hand, we unfortunately assume that they sometimes they know the scriptures all too well, and they don't, and they especially don't. many of these passages we're talking, even the religious ones, you know, some of them have never really paid yeah. attention to a Daniel 9 or, yeah. uh, or an Isaiah 53 and you know, many of your other passages. Well, uh, I, like, I like using the uh, the, the uh, Isaiah passage for unto us a child is born, which seems to be universally recognized by, by Jews and Christians as a messianic passage. And unto yeah. us a child is born and a son is given, and his name shall be called what? Almighty God, everlasting Father. And you go, yeah. hello? Absolutely, yeah. You know, uh, it's interesting. Uh, I Isaiah 53, um, the rabbis in Israel and various places, they have they have you know lots of responses to yeah. the messianic interpretation of the passage. And personally, I, I don't use that passage as much that much in my sharing of the gospel. And I, I'll explain why briefly. Uh, it's certainly a great passage. Yes, that's, that's the suffering and, servant. Passage. By all means, yeah. use it. Uh, it's just that I didn't see it used. Uh, for some reason, Paul doesn't use it, and I think the reason I think the reason Paul doesn't use it is because, really, I think the main issue uh, with or one of the principal barriers to the gospel for the Jew is based upon their whole thinking about the starting point of salvation history and how it is that God accomplished it. You know, for the Jews, you know, for example, in, in, in the book of Romans, where is Isaiah 53? Yeah. It's like, it's, it's missing. Well, why not, why, and why is it that in Paul's, you know, magnum opus presentation yeah, of the gospel, yeah. uh, especially with the Jewish audience, it was a Jewish Gentile mixture there in that church, but clearly he's emphasizing some points to his Jewish audience. Why is Isaiah 53 lacking there? Yeah. Well, he's clearly presenting a gospel and he has a Jewish audience. Why no reference to the sort of golden Old Testament passage for Shannon? That's gospel interesting. Yeah, Jews? interesting question. And because I think Paul realized that um, it was more uh, that if you can get the Jew to recognize the starting point of salvation uh, or, or this question of how it is that God accomplishes salvation, if you can get them to move back from Exodus 20 back to Genesis 15, then Isaiah 53 is so easy, much easier to just accept, almost perhaps automatically, because Paul's doctrine of justification by faith is not unique to him. In fact, that's why in Romans chapter 4, he's emphasizing, uh, look at what God did in the case of Abraham. Yeah. This is where it starts, my Jewish brothers and sisters, not at Exodus 20. <laughs> yeah. And so um, I often talk about what I call Jewish replacement theology. I'm not talking about the, the, the standard yeah. idea of, or the, the common idea of replacement theology where you have uh, the church replaced Israel and uh, this concept of replacement theology. But there's actually what's what I call a, a Jewish replacement theology. And what is that? That is that 
Moses replaces Abraham and that Mount Sinai replaces Mount Moriah. And for Paul, this was the critical thing. If you could, if you could undo this in the conscience of the Jewish people, then all of these other passages and other revelation about uh, the gospel and the Messiah will be much more easier to embrace. But as long as in their conscience, their identity in uh, this question of being right with God starts at Mount Sinai yeah. in Exodus 20, is Exodus 20, then trying to get truths like Isaiah 53 and the other um, yeah, that's that's anathema to them. They just don't want to hear about it. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 I think, and um, and let's just finish with this, um, uh, Philip. There's because we've talked about Jewish evangelism. It's it's not really a it's not really the right word that we should use. I mean, it is the evangel, the good news. We want to give our, our Jewish friends the good news that their Messiah has come, but we have to. Stop thinking of the in the natural terms of evangelism and conversion, because there is no need for a Jewish person to convert at all. They just need to discover their Messiah. Yeah, I, yeah. The, I, I'm not too particular about. I, I'm not too much concerned about the semantics of, of of our methodology. How do we refer to it as evangelism or? Sharon, I, I believe uh, Krista Stendhal in that very famous argument, uh, article, um, what was it called? Uh, um, Paul Among Jews and Gentiles or something like that. But it was a very uh, popular article that really spawned the whole new perspective mm-hmm. movement among scholars today. And uh, in that article, he talked about uh, uh, referring to Paul's experience as a calling uh, and not so much a conversion. And perhaps, uh, you know, we could use the term calling and, and, and as he used it to refer to our reaching out to Jews or yeah. helping awaken them to the calling of Jewish identity um, and the history of it. And, and, and then when you really are able to get them to understand the theological history of this identity, what it was intended for, then it, Yes, it is kind of like, hey, wake up to your calling. You know, yeah, it's yeah. it's not a, so much of a conversion in a sense, but um, and, and I I say I don't prefer to really get too much into the semantics of how we describe our approach because uh, in some cases, you know, Jews who are believing in Buddhism or some other religion, it, it really is indeed a conversion. I mean, nope. you have yep. to. Yeah. In some sense, you are coming from atheism. First, I have to convert you to actually being a traditional Jew. <laughs> then from there, I have to get you to awaken to yeah. the calling of yeah. being a Jew. So, uh, um, yeah, but there is that sense in which we should recognize that, um, especially if they are religious already and they have a strong belief in the Torah and the scriptures and and in God, and even uh, a fear of God, yeah. that we should, you know, perhaps avoid these terms of uh, maybe evangelism or or conversion, and and help them to just recognize more. Hey, this is about you waking up to the revelation of what this identity was intended to be, 
and how the promises of God yeah. have been fulfilled. You know, there was a lot of promises attached to these people and their calling and their purpose. And hey, hello, they've yeah. been the most important ones have been fulfilled now. Yeah, wake yeah. up, take a look at this, and embrace this. I, I, I read something recently on because uh, somebody was talking about the uh, the six day war and the war of independence and everything. And I read something recently. It was a, a secular report on the Gulf War and the number of Scud missiles that were fired into Israel, and the the official scientific reason or term given to why no damage was done was that was lucky. <laughs> you know, all, wow. all the missiles, that they couldn't come up with any scientific reason why none of those no. missiles hit or damaged anything majorly and why people weren't killed. The scientific reason is lucky. You lucky know, we, wow. we, we go, no, 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 that's the God of Israel looking after his people. Philip, is there anything I have that we haven't talked about that you think may be important to our, to our host or to our viewers and listeners about speaking about Jesus to Jewish people? Yeah, well, I'll just go back to the the thing of discernment. You know, this is very important, I think, at the outset, is discerning, you know, where the Jewish person is as far as their beliefs about God and the scriptures. And um, those conversation starter questions are important um, because, you know, one of my favorite questions I, I love to encourage people to use when I'm teaching about sharing the gospel with Jews is, is just start with that basic uh, question, but I think it's a powerful one. And it really opens up a very interesting discussion that usually will get you to the question about God and, and, and truth. Uh, and that is, what does it mean to you to be Jewish? Yeah, I think that's the most important, that's one of the best discernment questions you can ask without it being so overt. You it's know, it's hey, not in your face. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, all in your face. Yeah. What does it mean to you to be Jewish? You know, and usually their response to that question is going to reveal to you whether or not they're religious or just completely non-religious. And you can um, learn so much from them uh, about them just based on uh, response to that question. And that's going to help you in the discernment process. And so once you discern based on their response to a question such as that, all that they are um, religious, whether if they say being Jewish to me means uh, believing in the Torah, the religious ones following the Torah, almost all of the religious ones are going yeah, to say yeah. this. Um, so, you know, okay, I have, I don't need to start with, okay, God exists. You know, I don't, we're, we're past that. But yeah. if they say, oh, it just, you know, the different cultural things and traditional things, then more than likely this person is not a believer in God in, in general. And so you're dealing with uh, 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 the type of Jew where you're going to almost have to approach your presentation of the gospel to them will almost kind of have to start a bit with apologetics, basic yeah. apologetics about, hey, God is real. Um, so you, it's it's a much, much more work you have to do with <laughs> yeah. this type of person. But, but as yeah. you say, it's, it's discerning. The first thing to do is discern where they are, not assume that they have a, uh, a religious identity and that they have a faith in Yahweh. Exactly. Don't don't make that assumption. 
Um, they're, they're, it's not a monolithic con God consciousness yeah. among people who identify as Jewish, just simply not. And it's important to do a discernment um, by interacting with them. And the question I just shared, who, what does it mean to you to be Jewish, I think is a very, very good question to just get a baseline discernment of where, what this person believes about God whether or not they believe in God, yeah. Yeah, all right, Phillips, thank you so much uh, for your time. Thanks for joining us. I'm glad we managed to contact. Rob, thank you for having me on. It's an honor. I love uh, talking about these things, and yeah. uh, I hope that it will be of help to all of those who are out there passionate about reaching the lost sheep of Israel. Yeah, well, thank you for that. And uh, if you want to find out more about what Philip does, in fact, he's, a, he's a, an evangelistic musician as well. And uh, we're going to put a link in the comments so you can check out some of the music that uh, Philip does and uh, ch also check out his website for some Bible teaching.